Hello, friends. Thank you for having me this morning. It's great to be here. Like Alex said, <clears throat> my name is Brett, and uh, I recognize a lot of faces in the room. I was the first worship leader here at the church. It was an awesome privilege to be a part of this church family, and uh, I, got, uh, I got replaced by Jenny. So you're welcome. <laughs> you guys got an upgrade. Um, Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8, and so I'd love to invite you. If you have your Bibles, would you turn to Matthew chapter 8 with me? If you don't have your Bible, your phone will work just fine, uh, but I'd love to invite you to follow along with me as I, as I teach through, through Matthew chapter 8. Um, if you're a kid in the room and you've got a, a kid's Bible, it's on page 943 if you want to follow along. So um, as you're turning to Matthew chapter 8... I have a question for you. Uh, what's the most powerful thing you've ever seen in your life? What's the most powerful thing you've ever seen? Uh, quick story for me is uh, when I was in high school, I, was, uh, I played soccer, and our coach was actually a really, really good athlete when, he was, uh, when he, was, he was younger. He was actually good enough at soccer to try out for the U.S. men's national team. And so he was, he was a uh, a high caliber athlete, uh, and he had actually, uh, while he was trying out, he got injured, and it sidelined him, but then when he was in his early 30s, he, he was our, our soccer coach, and I can remember <clears throat> as a five foot nothing, 120 pounds, uh, just soaking wet freshman in high school, uh, seeing him for the first time kick a soccer ball. And I, I realized in that moment the difference between a professional caliber athlete and me. A five foot nothing, 120 pounds, still today, like no power compared to this guy. I mean, this guy had a rocket launcher for a leg. And uh, I can still remember watching him for the first time just tee up a soccer ball and just, I mean, it was like rockets just firing off. And he would have us do these drills where we would take off uh, our shirt and we would form a wall, a human wall, and he would just blast, he would just tee up, just blast soccer balls at us. And it, what he was doing was he was training us. He was making, he was toughening us up for actual games when we'd have to take shots or, or blows to the body from the ball. And I can remember, I'll never forget, the very first time that one of those shots hit my bare 120-pound, five-foot-nothing chest. I think it was the shot heard around the world. <laughs> To hear that ball smack my chest, you could hear it from a mile away. And I remember the air going out of my body. I remember gasping for breath and just thinking, wow, that is, this dude can kick a soccer ball. This guy has some power. For you, what is it? What's the most powerful thing you've ever seen? Today's passage walks us through a power display unlike any other. Jesus puts on a show. He displays his authority, his power, over the forces of nature, over Satan, over sickness and sin. But rather than be a source of discomfort or pain to us, Jesus' power should be a source of comfort, of peace to us. So I want to give you my sermon in a sentence today. If you forget everything else I say today, but you just remember one thing, would you remember this? All power rests in Jesus' hands. So find your peace in Jesus' hands. All power rests in Jesus' hands. So find your peace in Jesus' hands. And the story we see in our passage today matters for us because 
Far too often, we doubt who or what really holds power in our lives. Who really has authority? It's easy to give lip service that God's in control, right? You see, who or what we give the power to hold authority in our lives will dictate the way we see our circumstances, the way we see the world around us. It's easy to believe that God's in control when things in our life are going good. But what about when it seems like maybe our nation's on the brink of war? What about when a a worldwide pandemic hits and you lose half your retirement account in in the course of a week? What about when dreams that we've had for for years and years and worked and labored towards all get crushed and shattered in a moment? What about when we're faced with raising our kids in a culture that just seems so opposed to things that we might value? What about when we lose a loved one unexpectedly or we hit a season of depression or anxiety that just turns us upside down? What about when our football team just finds a way to lose every single game. Last gathering, I got an amen. Somebody's like, yep, yes, I'm with you. But seriously, seriously, it's in the moments of chaos and confusion. It's in the painful circumstances of our lives more than ever that we need to recognize that ultimate power and authority belongs to Jesus. And seeking to give anything other than Jesus, ultimate authority or power in our life, is a fool's errand. It will end in misery. Where the power lies, who we choose to give ultimate authority to, is where we will seek our peace from. And we cannot and will not find lasting peace in anything or anyone other than Jesus. So friends, remember... All power rests in Jesus' hands. So find your peace in Jesus' hands. And I want to set the scene for our story today. We've seen earlier, if you've, you've been here listening <clears throat> through the book of Matthew, you've seen that Jesus has, has taught with unparalleled, uh, unparalleled authority, incredible teachings. And now, here in Matthew chapter 8, and a little bit earlier, Jesus has coupled his incredible teaching with incredible miracles. And he's, he's garnered, he's, he's gained this incredible following of people. The problem is that most people aren't following Jesus to worship him. Most people are following Jesus to see what's the next show he's going to put on. What's the next great sermon he's going to give? What's the next great miracle he's going to perform? And so Jesus decides to take a trip over the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is a, is a, is a um, honestly, it's kind of like here in North America, it'd basically be a, a big old lake. It's a big lake. It separates where the Jewish people lived in what's modern-day Israel and uh, a land of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles were non-Jewish people. They would have been seen by the Jewish people as, uh, as heathen, as, as pagans, as less than. And Jesus takes a boat, he gets into it, and he's heading across the Sea of Galilee. That's where we're here now in our passage. Chapter 8, look at it with me, starting in verse 23. We'll read through verse 27. 
It says, when, he, when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went, they woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So we see Jesus shows his power over the storm. The forces of nature are ultimately at his command. And that's our first point for today, power over the storm. Power over the storm. Uh, Do you guys know anybody, have anybody in your life who sleeps like a rock? Yep, got some hands up. (laughs) It's like, it's me. I sleep like a rock. Um, No, uh, story from my life. My wife, Mercedes, um, can sleep like a rock. And when we very first got married, we both worked here at the church. And I would, we shared a car and we'd drive in together. And uh, there would be mornings where it'd be like a couple minutes before we had to get to work and she would still be asleep. And I'd be like, oh man, I got to get her up so we can get in the car and go. So I would, I would say your name, nothing. Say your name a little louder, nothing. Start shouting her name, nothing. I'd have to go into the room. I'd have to physically start shaking her and saying her name like really loud to get her to just draw out of her sleep. And here in the story, Jesus is knocked out. I mean, he is so far asleep. Think about it. He's sleeping literally in the midst of one of the worst storms the disciples have ever seen. And think about it. These disciples, many of them, before they were followers of Jesus, were full-time fishermen. They were used to life out on the Sea of Galilee. Now, just just for reference, um, the Sea of Galilee, it's a freshwater lake. It's in, in size area. It's just a little bit small, smaller than the Lake of the Ozarks. And so uh, big waves would be common, but nothing like what it seems the disciples experience here. The Greek word for great storm in verse 24 is the word seismos, which means violent shaking or earthquake. It's the word that we get uh, the word seismic from. So these aren't gentle, lapping waves. These are nasty, violent swells. We can picture the boat getting thrown around like a rag doll in the wind. It's being swamped down. It's being filled with water, which makes it all the more shocking to the disciples that Jesus is knocked down, dragged out, passed out in the bottom of the boat. In Mark's account of the story in the book of Mark, he says that Jesus was asleep in the stern of the boat. Now, we have to remember, we have to think, this isn't an airtight cruise liner. Ships that commonly sailed the Sea of Galilee at this time, uh, they they believe, uh, they found in the 80s, they dug up on the Sea of Galilee about a 2,000-year-old boat that they believe was probably very similar to the one that that Jesus and his disciples would have been in at this time. The boat was um, about the size of a modern-day speedboat. You can picture about 25 feet in length. 
is about uh, seven inches wide, about f or seven inches wide. That'd be a small boat. <laughs> it's about seven feet wide, about four feet deep, uh, and it could hold up to about 15 men. Would have been perfect size for Jesus and his disciples. It had an open top and a small mass that would raise up to, to catch the wind. So we can picture in our mind's eye what this boat might be like. We got to know that Jesus is not snuggled up in a nice, airtight, waterproof cubby. He's probably wet, and he's definitely rolling around down there in the violent shaking in the swells of the waves. So how in the heck can Jesus sleep in the middle of this incredible storm? It's not because he had a little bit too much to eat and he fell into a food coma. It's not because he's sleep deprived and he needs to catch up on a few Z's. It's because Jesus is at peace. Wet, weary, thrown around like a rag doll, Jesus is at peace. Jesus isn't put in jeopardy by the forces of nature. He's not at their whim, and he's not under their control. Colossians 1.16 puts it this way. It says, by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. See, the wind moves in the storm because Jesus breathed it into existence. The waves crash on the shore because Jesus allotted their boundaries and gave them the power to do so. Jesus is at peace because the storm ultimately belongs to him. It's under his authority. It's under his power. But the disciples don't know that. They cry out, save us. Jesus, we're perishing. Don't you see? They've resigned themselves to death. They're hoping that somehow, some way, Jesus can pull another miracle out of his hat and get them out of this situation. Jesus rises from sleep. He challenges the disciples. And his question is interesting. If you look at it with me in verse 26, he asks them the question, why are you afraid? And listen, if I was one of the disciples in this moment, I think I literally might look Jesus in the face and just go, duh. Uh, hello? Have you looked around? Do you see the storm that we're in? Do you see the boat filling with water? Jesus, what are you talking about? See, the disciples believe they're at the mercy of the wind and the waves, entrusted to an uncertain future, and at the mercy of the malevolent, unfeeling, cold, and uncaring forces of nature. Friends, what are you afraid of? If we're honest with ourselves, aren't we tempted to believe the same things that the disciples do in the story? That our lives and futures and destinies are entrusted to the forces of the world around us? Maybe not a physical storm, but maybe things like this. Maybe we believe that if I don't do A through Z right in raising my kids just right, if I don't just get it perfect, they're going to be so screwed up. They're going to be lost. 
and it's going to be all my fault. I mean, that's, that's what all the experts say. That's what the pedi- pediatrician down the street told me. We think things like, if I don't have this quality and these things figured out in life, then I'll always be single. I'll never find a significant other. I'll always be miserable. I'll always be alone because that's just what happens for people like me in my situation. Or maybe it's that my marriage is always going to suck because there's no way our circumstances could ever change. I don't see a way out. I don't see how anything could ever change. I've seen this happen a thousand times with other couples, and there's just no way out. I know it. We resign ourselves. We throw up our hands, and we entrust our fate to these things and give ultimate authority to the culture around us, to the people around us or to our own ability to provide for ourselves or pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, rather than trusting that we're ultimately in the control of a good God who loves us, who really does care about us, who really does see us in each and every moment, in every circumstance, who really is in control, who really does have all authority and power in his hands. So Jesus speaks a word of rebuke, and the storm goes from 100 to zero in a heartbeat. Absolute chaos and confusion turns to pristine beauty in a moment. You can picture it out on the Sea of Galilee. The waves just done. Which begs the question, Jesus why allow the storm in the first place? Like, you would have gotten way better sleep, right? Like, if you had the power to put the storm at bay the whole time, why not just rebuke it before it ever even comes in? And here's why I think Jesus allowed the storm to happen. It's because Jesus needed to teach his disciples, and he needs to teach us today, that more than we need protection from our circumstances... We need the presence of a Savior. The disciples thought they were dead at the hands of the storm, not realizing that all along they were in the hands of Jesus. So friends, what in your life do you need to entrust to the hands of Jesus? What is it in your life that you feel like, I'm just, you've thrown your hands up and gone, I'm just, I'm just at the whim of, of the cold, uncaring world. And instead, you need to recognize, you need to hand over and realize, Jesus, ultimately, this thing, these things, they are in your good hands. All power rests in Jesus' hands. So find your peace in Jesus' hands. I'm going to move on to our next chunk of scripture. Uh, let's look at verse 28 with me. We'll read through, through 34. And when he, when Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now, a herd of pigs, of many pigs, was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, Send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Okay, pause. You couldn't make that up, right? Like, you just can't make that up. That is so bizarre. Continuing on, verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So the second point we see in our passage is power over Satan. Power over Satan. The disciples are left asking at the end of our last section this question about Jesus. Who is this? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They don't yet recognize his identity as the Messiah, as God himself. And here's what's ironic about the encounter that we see here with these two demons. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. No questions asked. No need to read a book about apologetics and see, do the facts line up? Is this, is this, could this really be God? Isn't it interesting, isn't it ironic that out of all creation, we humans are the only ones too stiff-necked to even recognize God himself when he's standing in our midst? You see, one of Satan's strategies in our current culture is to convince us that the spiritual world isn't real, that demons don't exist, that all there is is what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands and explain with our mouths to the point where the biggest religious debate in our culture today is whether or not God is even real. We would be absolute fools and we would be in the absolute minority of all cultures and civilizations over thousands of years to deny the reality of the spiritual world, to deny the reality of the forces of darkness. Our culture is so utterly deceived and under a spell of Satan to be so blind to spiritual realities happening around us all the time. But Satan isn't deceived. The demons cry out in verse 29. What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that one day Jesus will hold them accountable for their actions. That on the last day, Satan and his minions will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire where they will be eternally punished for their crimes. And these demons, they fear Jesus. Every interaction throughout the scriptures that Jesus has with any demons they're afraid. They know the power and the authority that he holds over them. And so they go on to ask Jesus, if you cast us out, basically begging, would you please send us into the herd of pigs? And so Jesus flexes. What does he do? He says one word. Go. Not anxious. Not wondering, what am I going to do here? says one word, go, and the demons flee. He shows his power over the realm of the supernatural and the spiritual, over the forces of darkness and over the dominion of Satan. 
which means for us today, if we belong to Jesus, we don't need to fear the spiritual forces of darkness. If Satan can't lull us into a sense of sleep to the spiritual realities of the world, he'll try to intimidate us and cow us into fear and disobedience. I remember when I first became a Christian, I first accepted Jesus and started following Jesus. Before I followed Jesus, I had no idea. I thought that spiritual realities weren't real. I just thought it wasn't a thing. And I can remember when I first came to know Jesus, it was like something, it's like the spiritual world became real to me. I, I believed it. And it was like, it was like the thermometer just got turned up in my life. Like when I realized it was real, Satan's tactics switched. It wasn't to try and lull me into a sense of sleep to spiritual realities. It was to frighten me. It was to make me think that, that man, I, how, what's going to happen to me? Or am, am I going to come under attack? Or, or, or what's going to happen? He would speak light like Satan will speak lies to us about our identity to say, oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not worthy to follow Jesus. I'm not worthy to be protected by Jesus. I'm not really loved by Jesus enough. I'm, I'm such a screw-up. And guys, it's such a lie. It's an absolute lie. If the powers of darkness feel scary or unsettling to us, we should be quick to remember this story to remember how afraid the demons are of King Jesus. He's good. He's in control. He's not anxious or unsettled. He has absolute power over the forces of darkness, and his spirit lives inside us. We have nothing to fear because Jesus is with us. He promises that his spirit is living in us, his power available to us, his authority living with us over the forces of darkness and the spiritual realms. We have nothing to fear because Jesus is with us. For kids in the room, remember, because Jesus is on your side, you don't have to be afraid. Because Jesus is on your side, you don't have to be afraid. The demons in our passage, they made the lives of these possessed men a living hell. The passage tells us that these men are too fierce, they're too brutal, they're too dangerous for anyone to come near them. They've been relegated to live in the graveyard. They've been outcast by society and left for dead. The demons have shown them no mercy, and think about it, even when the demons are cast into the herd of pigs, their intent is bent on destruction and death. What's the first thing they do? They literally take the herd of pigs over the edge of a cliff and drown them in water. I, I, did, I tried to do the math, and I know I've got some people in the room right now who are um, in, into ag, into livestock, maybe. I, I'm going to give a pre, like a pre-warning. I don't know anything about agriculture. I wasn't even in 4-H. Okay, so I don't, I don't really know this, but I try to do the math to say, how much are about 2,000 pigs worth? Like, what would that be worth in today's money? And I kind of did the math and thought about, okay, um, 
it's, it's by the pound. That's how you calculate the cost of hogs. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe these hogs 2,000 years ago, they aren't maybe as, quite as big as the ones now. I thought 2,000 pigs, I did the math, it's probably worth over a million dollars in livestock. Crazy. A crazy amount of dollars run over the edge of that cliff and drown in the water. And so the townspeople come out and they're stunned. This is their entire livelihood cast over into the water, drown. But isn't it crazy? It says in the story, the herdsmen leave. Their main, their main point, though, isn't saying, oh my gosh, guys, guys, the pigs, the pigs, they're gone, they're dead. They're, the main thing that they are crazy about, that they are amazed by, is these two demon-possessed men that literally are like monsters are in their right minds. That's the, that's the reason the people come out. If the pigs are dead, who cares? Why walk out there? The people are amazed that these two men are in their right minds. Mark, in his account of this story, and Luke, in his, in his account of this story, both say that the people were shocked to come to find these men in their right minds. And it says that they were sitting at the feet of Jesus. The people come out. They're stunned to see these men no longer possessed, now in their right minds, and they're horrified by the loss of their income. They beg Jesus to leave. They see him as merely a financial liability rather than as Lord. Jesus, we can't take another financial hit if you do something like this again. So would you please just, just leave? But think about Jesus' heart in this story, friends. Of all the places and all the people he could have interacted with, Jesus seeks out two demon-possessed men. It's not like he was just passing through, taking a stroll through the graveyard, and happened upon these two men. No, Jesus specifically crosses the sea, endures the storm to get to these two men. Wouldn't it have been so much more efficient if we were just merely planning today's church planning methods and means? Wouldn't it have been so much more efficient, effective for Jesus to go into the town and evangelize hundreds of people there? But Jesus reaches out to the ones that nobody else wants to touch. Jesus seeks out specifically the people that nobody wants anything to do with. These men who thought themselves to be eternally trapped in the hands of Satan find themselves in the hands of Jesus. Once under the power of Satan, now recipients of the power and mercy of Jesus. So friends, the story of these demon-possessed men, we have to realize is our story. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Colossians 1.13 says this, He, the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. See, we too lived under the power of Satan. 
maybe not possessed by demons, but nonetheless unwittingly citizens of his kingdom and destined for destruction. We too were haters of God, living as residents in the kingdom of darkness and far from God's kingdom. And just like the demon-possessed men, Jesus crossed the chasm. He bridged the gap to seek us out. And in moments when our sin makes us feel too unlovable for God, like we've done too much or we're just too broken for God to come for us again, Jesus seeks us out. Jesus draws near to us. Jesus endures the storm to get to us. And if it was just you, just you across the sea, he would do it. When we doubt God's desire to seek and save the unlovable, would we remember Matthew 8 and the story of the two demon-possessed men? When we look at the world and our hearts are filled with uncertainty and anxiety, when we're just wondering, like, is the world just like going to hell in a handbasket? Like, is it just, is Satan just having his way? Would we remember the power of Jesus over Satan? All power rests in Jesus' hands. So would we find your peace in Jesus' hands? We're going to move on to our last chunk of scripture. Let's finish this out. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. If you follow along with me, getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over. So he gets back into the boat, crosses back over the Sea of Galilee. He's coming back into Jewish territory now. Got into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and he went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So our third and final point is power over sickness and sin. All along in our story today, we've seen the power and authority of Jesus on display, and here, in our last section of this passage, we see Jesus' ultimate flex in his power and authority to forgive sin. So after healing the demon-possessed men, Jesus gets in the boat. He crosses back over the Sea of Galilee, and a paralyzed man is brought to Jesus. And we don't know much about this man, but we know that he had faith in Jesus, along with his, his friends, his companions who bring him to Jesus, and that he is a sinner, like the rest of us. Matthew records in verse 2, if you look at it with me, it says, When Jesus saw their faith... That is the faith of the paralytic and the people that had carried him to him. Jesus said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. See, the paralyzed man wanted to be healed 
of his paralysis, but Jesus had something better in mind, healing from his sin. And this really myths the religious leaders of the day, the scribes. Like the disciples earlier in our story, they don't know and don't believe in Jesus' identity as the Son of God. They don't think he's God himself. They grumble. This man is blaspheming. In other words, they inwardly accuse Jesus of doing what only God can do, forgiving sins. And Jesus sees straight to their hearts, and he addresses their thoughts. He says in verse 4, why do you think evil in your hearts? goes on, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? In its original context, the question Jesus asks would be obvious to answer. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because the immediate outward effect of forgiveness of sins is nothing. Forgiveness of sins produces an immediate inward effect that later is shown by outward evidence. But outwardly, in the immediate sense, it shows no effect. To say rise and walk, on the other hand, is harder because the physical result of it has to immediately be seen to be proven. And so Jesus shows his power over sickness by immediately healing the man's paralysis. Unused muscles. Think about this. Think about this scene. Unused muscles. We're, let's just assume for a second, this man has probably been paralyzed, if not for almost all his life, probably almost all his life. Unused muscles are restored and grown. Bones that are brittle have held no weight for years and years and years are strengthened. Nerve endings that haven't been connected are, are drawn together. The physiology just to walk is all undone, reshaped, put back together. Can you imagine how incredible, like, what? Like, if you saw this with your own eyes, you would be like, what the heck just happened? I thought to myself, if, if I had been healed of paralysis, like, I feel like it says that the man walked home. Like, I feel like I'd be like, dude, wouldn't you just, like, run home? Wouldn't you skip home? Wouldn't you, like, shout and dance? And I don't know. But it dawned on me, for this man... I have a, a one-year-old son at home. He's been walking for about six months. He's still trying to figure out how to do it right. For this man, he is doing, he, for the first time, what he's never been able to do. He's learning to walk. He's doing what he's seen others do and long to do his entire life. But now, in this moment, I can just picture his buddies that brought him into Jesus, wrapping his arms around him, and they're, they're trying to show him, okay, one foot in front of the other. That's how you do it. He walks home. Jesus' power over sickness was used by Jesus to point to a deeper and more profound power and authority, his power to forgive sins. 
a power that belongs to God alone. This man came to Jesus with a need to be healed of sickness, but Jesus knew he had a deeper need to be forgiven of his sin. You see, where sickness has the power to condemn us to a lifetime of suffering, sin has the power to condemn us to an eternity of suffering. Sin has the power to condemn us to an eternity of suffering. And this is the greatest purpose for which Jesus came. He says, he came to seek and save sinners like you and me. We are saved by his shed blood on the cross where he willingly took the penalty, the wrath for sin that we deserve in our place. Friends, don't miss the fact that Jesus offers you his power to meet your greatest need, the need to be forgiven of your sin. Don't miss the fact that Jesus offers you his power to bring you peace, not just peace in the midst of your circumstances, but peace with the Father for all of eternity. We can trust Jesus' power in our lives because he's proved his trustworthiness to us. He went to the cross, and friends, he thought of you there. When we want to believe lies like, God doesn't love me, I've messed up too many times, like there's something broken with me, would we remember that Jesus thought of us? He thought of you on the cross. He endured the storm of God's wrath in our place so that we could be forgiven and offered eternal peace with God. And Jesus would make his ultimate flex by three days later rising from the grave to eternal life and friends offering us the same eternal life, the same resurrection power that one day we will be resurrected and eternally with him forever. So friends, today we've seen in our passage, Jesus' power over the storm, over Satan, over sickness and sin. And my hope is that we would find great peace in the fact that Jesus is good, that he loves us, that he holds complete power and control over all things in every circumstance in our life. Would we leave today remembering that all power rests in Jesus' hands? So would you find your peace in Jesus' hands? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Thank you for going to the cross, for thinking of us. Thank you for offering us peace, Jesus, not just in the midst of our circumstances, but peace for eternity with the Father. Thank you, Jesus for who you are, for what you've done. I pray as we take communion now and have an opportunity to remember the sacrifice you made that we wouldn't take lightly your blood that was broken or your body that was broken on our behalf, your blood that was shed and spilled so that we can be forgiven. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We lift this to you. Amen.